Section forty four of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. On Friday, March the twenty fourth, I met him at the Literary Club, where were Mr. Beauclerc, Mr. Langton, Mr. Coleman, Dr. Percy, Mr. Basie, Sir Charles Bunbury, Dr. George Fordyce, Mr. Stevens, and Mr. Charles Fox. Before he came in, we talked of his journey to the Western Islands, and of his coming away willing to believe the second sight, which seemed to excite some ridicule. I was then so impressed with the truth of many of the stories of it which I had been told, that I avowed my conviction, saying, He is only willing to believe. I do believe. The evidence is enough for me, though not for his great mind. What will not fill a quart bottle will fill a pint bottle. I am filled with belief. Footnote. He had written to Temple six days earlier. Second sight pleases my superstition, which, you know, is not small, and, being not of the gloomy but the grand species, is an enjoyment. And I go further than Mr. Johnson, for the facts which I heard convinced me. Letters of Boswell. When, ten years later, he published his tour, he said, November the 10th, 1773, that he had returned from the Hebrides with a considerable degree of faith, but, he added, since that time my belief in those stories has been much weakened. End of footnote. What will not fill a quart bottle will fill a pint bottle. I am filled with belief. Are you? said Coleman. Then cork it up. I found his journey the common topic of conversation in London at this time, wherever I happened to be. At one of Lord Mansfield's formal Sunday evening conversations, strangely called levees, his lordship addressed me, we have all been reading your travels, Mr. Boswell. I answered, I was but the humble attendant of Dr. Johnson. The Chief Justice replied, With that air and manner which none who ever saw and heard him can forget, he speaks ill of nobody but Ossian. Johnson was in high spirits this evening at the club, and talked with great animation and success. He attacked Swift, as he used to do upon all occasions. The tale of a tub is so much superior to his other writings that one can hardly believe he was the author of it. Footnote. This doubt has been much agitated on both sides, I think without good reason. See Addison's Freeholder, May the 4th, 1714. The Freeholder was published from December 1715 to June 1716. In the number for May the 4th there is no mention of The Tale of a Tub. An apology for The Tale of a Tub, Swift's Works, Dr. Hawkesworth's preface to Swift's Works, and Swift's letter to Took the Printer, and Took's answer in that collection. Sheridan's Life of Swift, Mr. Courtenay's note on page 3 of his poetical review of the literary and moral character of Dr. Johnson, and Mr. Cooksey's 
Essay on the Life and Character of John Lord Summers, Baron of Evesham. End of footnote. One can hardly believe he was the author of it. There is in it such vigour of mind, such a swarm of thoughts, so much of nature and art and life. Footnote. Dr. Johnson here speaks only to the internal evidence. I take leave to differ from him, having a very high estimation of the powers of Dr. Swift. His Sentiments of a Church of England Man, his Sermon on the Trinity, and other serious pieces, prove his learning as well as his acuteness in logic and metaphysics, and his various compositions of a different cast exhibit not only wit, humour, and ridicule, but a knowledge of nature and art and life. The combination, therefore, of those powers when, as the Apology says, the author was young, his invention at the height, and his reading fresh in his head might surely produce the tale of a tub. Boswell. His tale of a tub has little resemblance to his other pieces. It exhibits a vehemence and rapidity of mind, a copiousness of images, and vivacity of diction, such as he afterwards never possessed or never exerted. It is of a mode so distinct and peculiar that it must be considered by itself. What is true of that is not true of anything else which he has written. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 220. At the conclusion of the Life of Swift, Ibid, page 228, Johnson allows him one great merit. It was said in a preface to one of the Irish editions that Swift had never been known to take a single thought from any writer, ancient or modern. This is not literally true, but perhaps no writer can easily be found that has borrowed so little, or that in all his excellencies and all his defects has so well maintained his claim to be considered as original. End footnote. I wondered to hear him say of Gulliver's travels, when once you have thought of big men and little men, it is very easy to do all the rest. I endeavoured to make a stand for Swift, and tried to rouse those who were much more able to defend him, but in vain. Johnson at last, of his own accord, allowed very great merit to the inventory of articles found in the pocket of the Man Mountain, particularly the description of his watch, which was conjectured was his god, as he consulted it upon all occasions. He observed that Swift put his name to but two things, after he had a name to put, the plan for the improvement of the English language and the last Drapier's letter. Footnote. Johnson, in his dictionary under the article Shave, quotes Swift in one example and in the next Gulliver's Travels, not admitting it should seem that Swift had written that book. End of footnote. From Swift there was an easy transition to Mr. Thomas Sheridan. Johnson. Sheridan is a wonderful admirer of the tragedy of Douglas, and presented its author with a gold medal. Some years ago at a coffee-house in Oxford I called to him, 
Mr. Sheridan, Mr. Sheridan, how came you to give a gold medal to Hume for writing that foolish play? Footnote. See Boswell's Hebrides, October the 26th, 1773. David Hume wrote of Hume's Argis, I own, though I could perceive fine strokes in that tragedy, I never could in general bring myself to like it. The author, I thought, had corrupted his taste by the imitation of Shakespeare, whom he ought only to have admired. J. H. Burton's Hume. About Douglas, he wrote, I am persuaded it will be esteemed the best, and by French critics the only, tragedy of our language, Ibid. Hume perhaps admired it the more, as it was written, to use his own words, by a namesake of mine, Ibid. H-O-M-E is pronounced Hume. He often wrote of his friend as Mr. John Hume, alias H-O-M-E. A few days before his death, he added the following codicil to his will. I leave to my friend Mr. John Hume of Kilduff ten dozen of my old claret at his choice, and one single bottle of that other liquor called port. I also leave to him six dozen of port, provided that he attests under his hand, signed John Hume, H-U-M-E, that he has himself alone finished that bottle at two sittings. By this concession he will at once terminate the only two differences that ever arose between us concerning temporal matters. Ibid. Sir Walter Scott wrote in his diary in 1827, I finished the review of John Hume's works, which, after all, are poorer than I thought them. Good blank verse and stately sentiment, but something lukewarmish excepting Douglas, which is certainly a masterpiece. Even that does not stand the closet. Its merits are for the stage, and it is certainly one of the best acting plays going. Lockhart Scott, end of footnote. I called to him, Mr. Sheridan, Mr. Sheridan, how came you to give a gold medal to Hume for writing that foolish play? This, you see, was wanton and insolent. But I meant to be wanton and insolent. A medal has no value but as a stamp of merit. It was Sheridan to assume to himself the right of giving that stamp. If Sheridan was magnificent enough to bestow a gold medal as an honorary reward of dramatic excellence, he should have requested one of the universities to choose the person on whom it should be conferred. Sheridan had no right to give a stamp of merit. It was counterfeiting Apollo's coin. Footnote. Sheridan, says Mr. S. White, miscellanean over, brought out Douglas at the Dublin Theatre. The first two nights it had great success. The third night was, as usual, to be the author's. It had meanwhile got abroad that he was a clergyman. This play was considered a profanation. A faction was raised, and the third night did not pay its expenses. It was White who suggested that, by way of consolation, Sheridan should give Hume a gold medal. The inscription said that he presented it to him 
for having enriched the stage with a perfect tragedy. White took the medal to London. When he was close at his journey's end, I was, he writes, stopped by highwaymen, and preserved the medal by the sacrifice of my purse at the imminent peril of my life. End of footnote. On Monday, March the 27th, I breakfasted with him at Mr. Strawn's. He told us that he was engaged to go that evening to Mrs. Abington's benefit. She was visiting some ladies whom I was visiting, and begged that I would come to her benefit. I told her I could not hear, but she insisted so much on my coming that it would have been brutal to have refused her. This was a speech quite characteristical. He loved to bring forward his having been in the gay circles of life, and he was perhaps a little vain of the solicitations of this elegant and fashionable actress. He told us the play was to be the hypocrite, altered from Sibber's non-jura, so as to satirise the Methodists. Footnote. No merit now the dear non-jura claims. Moliere's old stubble in a moment flames. The non-jura was a comedy thrashed out of Moliere's tartuffe. The Dunciad. End of footnote. I do not think, said he, the character of the hypocrite justly applicable to the Methodists, but it was very applicable to the non-jurors. Footnote. See post, June the ninth, 1784, also Macaulay's England, for remarks on what Johnson here says. End of footnote. I once said to Dr. Madden, a clergyman of Ireland who was a great Whig, that perhaps a non-juror would have been less criminal in taking the oaths imposed by the ruling power than refusing them, because refusing them necessarily laid him under almost an irresistible temptation to be more criminal. For a man must live, and if he precludes himself from the support furnished by the establishment, will probably be reduced to very wicked shifts to maintain himself. Footnote. This was not merely a cursory remark, for in his Life of Fenton, he observes, with many other wise and virtuous men who at that time of discord and debate about the beginning of this century, consulted conscience, in square brackets whether, well or ill-informed, more than interest, he doubted the legality of the government, and refusing to qualify himself for public employment by taking the oaths, in square brackets by the oaths, required left the university without a degree. This conduct Johnson calls perverseness of integrity. Johnson's Works, volume 8, page 54. The question concerning the morality of taking oaths of whatever kind imposed by the prevailing power at the time, rather than to be excluded from all consequence or even any considerable usefulness in society, has been agitated with all the acuteness of casuistry. It is related that he who devised the oath of abjuration profligately boasted that he had framed a test which should damn one half of the nation and starve the other. 
upon minds not exalted to inflexible rectitude or minds in which zeal for a party is predominant to excess taking that oath against conviction may have been palliated under the plea of necessity or ventured upon in heat as upon the whole producing more good than evil at a county election in scotland many years ago when there was a warm contest between the friends of the hanoverian succession and those against it the oaths of abjuration having been demanded the freeholders upon one side rose to go away upon which a very sanguine gentleman one of their number ran to the door to stop them calling out with much earnestness stay stay my friends and let us swear the rogues out of it boswell johnson writing of the oaths required under the militia bill of seventeen fifty six says the frequent imposition of oaths has almost ruined the morals of this unhappy nation and of a nation without morals it is of small importance who shall be king literary magazine and a footnote boswell i should think sir that a man who took the oaths contrary to his principles was a determined wicked man because he was sure he was committing perjury whereas a non-juror might be insensibly led to do what was wrong without being so directly conscious of it johnson my sir a man who goes to bed to his patron's wife is pretty sure that he is committing wickedness boswell did the non-juring clergyman do so sir johnson i am afraid many of them did i was startled at his argument and could by no means think it convincing had not his own father complied with the requisition of government footnote dr harwood sent me the following extract from the book containing the proceedings of the corporation of lichfield nineteenth of july seventeen twelve agreed that mr michael johnson b and is hereby elected a magistrate and brother of the incorporation a day is given him to thursday next to take the oath of fidelity and allegiance and the oath of a magistrate signed etc twenty fifth of july seventeen twelve mr johnson took the oath of allegiance and that he believed there was no transubstantiation in the sacrament of the lord's supper before etc croker and a footnote had not his own father complied with the requisition of government as to which he once observed to me when i pressed him upon it that sir he was to settle with himself he would probably have thought more unfavourably of a jacobite who took the oaths had he not resembled my father as he swore footnote a parody on macbeth act two scene two and a footnote mr strawn talked of launching into the great ocean of london in order to have a chance for rising into eminence and observing that many men were kept back from trying their fortunes there because they were born to a competency said small certainties are the bane of men of talents which johnson confirmed Footnote. lord southampton asked bishop watson of landaff 
how he was to bring up his son so as to make him get forwards in the world. I know but one way, replied the bishop. Give him parts and poverty. Well then, replied Lord S., if God has given him parts, I will manage as to the poverty. H. C. Robinson's Diary Lord Eldon said that Thurlow promised to give him a post worth about a hundred and sixty pounds a year, but he never did. In afterlife, said Eldon, I inquired of him why he had not fulfilled his promise. His answer was curious. It would have been your ruin. Young men are very apt to be content when they get something to live upon, so when I saw what you were made of, I determined to break my promise to make you work. And I dare say he was right, but there is nothing does a young lawyer so much good as to be half starved, twists Eldon end a footnote. Mr. Strawn put Johnson in mind of a remark which he had made to him. There are few ways in which a man can be more innocently employed than in getting money. The more one thinks of this, said Strawn, the juster it will appear. Mr. Strawn had taken a poor boy from the country as an apprentice upon Johnson's recommendation. Johnson, having inquired after him, said, Mr. Strawn, let me have five guineas on account, and I'll give this boy one. Now, if a man recommends a boy and does nothing for him, it is sad work. Call him down. I followed him into the courtyard behind Mr. Strawn's house, footnote, in New Street, near Gough Square in Fleet Street, whither in February 1770 the King's Printing House was removed from what is still called Printing House Square, Croker. Dr. Spottiswood, the late President of the Royal Society, was the great-grandson of Mr. Strawn, end of footnote. And there I had a proof of what I had heard him profess, that he talked alike to all. Some people tell you that they let themselves down to the capacity of their hearers. I never do that. I speak uniformly in as intelligible a manner as I can. Well, my boy, how do you go on? Pretty well, sir, but they are afraid I aren't strong enough for some parts of the business. Johnson. Why, I shall be sorry for it, for... When you consider with how little mental power and corporeal labour a printer can get a guinea a week, it is a very desirable occupation for you. Do you hear? Take all the pains you can. And if this does not do, we must think of some other way of life for you. There's a guinea. Here was one of the many, many instances of his act of benevolence. At the same time, the slow and sonorous solemnity with which, while he bent himself down, he addressed a little, thick, short-legged boy, contrasted with the boy's awkwardness and awe, could not but excite some ludicrous emotions. Footnote. Johnson wrote to Dr. Taylor on April the 8th of this year, I have placed young Davenport in the greatest printing-house in London, and hear no complaint of him but want of size which will not hinder him much. He may, when he is a journeyman, always get a guinea a week. 
Notes and Queries. Mr. Jewett, in the Gentleman's Magazine for December 1878, gives an account of this lad. He was the orphan son of a clergyman, a friend of the Reverend W. Langley, Master of Ashbourne School. Mr. Langley asked Johnson's help, procuring him a place in some eminent printing office. Davenport wrote to Mr. Langley nearly eight years later, According to your desire, I consulted Dr. Johnson about my future employment in life. And he very laconically told me to work hard at my trade as others had done before me. I told him my size and want of strength prevented me from getting as much money as other men. Then, replied he, you must get as much as you can. The boy was nearly sixteen when he was apprenticed, and had learnt enough Latin to quote Virgil, so that there was nothing in Johnson's speech beyond his understanding. End of footnote. I met him at Drury Lane Playhouse in the evening. Sir Joshua Reynolds, at Mrs. Abington's request, had promised to bring a body of wits to her benefit, and having secured forty places in the front boxes, had done me the honour to put me in the group. Johnson sat on the seat directly behind me, and as he could neither see nor hear at such a distance from the stage, he was wrapped up in grave abstraction, and seemed quite a cloud amidst all the sunshine of glitter and gaiety. Footnote. Seven years afterwards, Johnson described this evening... Miss Monckton had told him that he must see Mrs. Siddons. Well, madam, he answered, if you desire it, I will go. See her, I shall not, nor hear her, but I'll go, and that will do. The last time I was at a play, I was ordered there by Mrs. Abington, or Mrs. Somebody, I do not well remember who, but I placed myself in the middle of the first row of the front boxes to show that, when I was called, I came. Madame D'Arblay's Diary At Fontainebleau he went to a comedy, post-October the 19th, 1775, so that it was not the last time he was at a play. One evening, in the oratorio season of 1771, writes Mrs. Piozzi, anecdotes, Mr. Johnson went with me to Covent Garden Theatre. He sat surprisingly quiet, and I flattered myself that he was listening to the music. When we got home, he repeated these verses which he said he had made at the oratorio. In Theatre, March the 8th, 1771. Tetsi verso quattro orbe lustri Quid teatralis tibi crispe pompae, quam decet canos male literate sera voluptas. Tene moceri fidibus canorus, tene cantorum modulus stupere, tene perpictas oculo elegante curere formas, inter aequales sine felle liber, Codices veri studiosus interrectius vives, sua quisque capal gaudia gratis, lucibus gaudet pua otiosis, luxis oblectat juvenem theatri, at 
senic luxo sapienta uti tempore restat. Berks, volume 1, page 166, I wondered at his patience in sitting out a play of five acts and a farce of two. He said very little, but after the prologue to Bon Ton, footnote, Bon Ton, or High Life Above Stairs, by Garrick, he made King the Comedian a present of this farce, and it was acted for the first time on his benefit a little earlier in the month. Murphy's Garrick, and a footnote. After the prologue to Bon Ton had been spoken, which he could hear pretty well from the more slow and distinct utterance, he talked of prologue writing, and observed, Dryden has written prologues superior to any that David Garrick has written, but David Garrick has written more good prologues than Dryden has done. It is wonderful that he has been able to write such variety of them. Footnote. August 1778. An epilogue of Mr. Garrick's to Bonduca was mentioned, and Dr. Johnson said it was a miserable performance. I don't know, he said, what is the matter with David. I am afraid he has grown superannuated, for his prologues and epilogues used to be incomparable. Madame D'Arblay's diary and a footnote. At Mr. Beauclerc's, where I supped, was Mr. Garrick whom I made happy with Johnson's praise of his prologues, and I suppose, in gratitude to him, he took up one of his favourite topics, the nationality of the Scotch, which he maintained in a pleasant manner with the aid of a little poetical fiction. Come, come, don't deny it, they are really national. By now, the Adams are as liberal-minded men as any in the world, but I don't know how it is. All their workmen are Scotch. Footnote. The Adams, Scottish brethren and architects who had bought Durham Yard and directed a large pile of buildings under the affected name of the Adelphi. These men, of great taste in their profession, were attached particularly to Lord Bute and Lord Mansfield, and thus by public and private nationality, zealous politicians. Walpole's Memoirs of the Reign of George III. Hume wrote to Adam Smith in June 1772 at a time when there was a universal loss of credit. Of all the sufferers I am the most concerned for the Adams. But their undertakings were so vast that nothing could support them. They must dismiss three thousand workmen who comprehending the materials, must have expended above one hundred thousand pounds a year. To me the scheme of the Adelphi always appeared so imprudent that my wonder is how they could have gone on so long. J. H. Burton's Hume. Garrick lived in the Adelphi. End of footnote. You are, to be sure, wonderfully free from that nationality, but, so it happens, that you employ the only Scotch shoeblack in London. He imitated the manner of his old master with a ludicrous exaggeration, repeating with pauses and half-whistlings interjected, Os homini sublime dedit, quelumque tuere iusit, et harectus ad sirera tolere vultus. Footnote. Man looks aloft with erected eyes, beholds his own hereditary skies. 
Dryden Ovid Metamorphoses, end of footnote. Looking downwards all the time, and while pronouncing the four last words, absolutely touching the ground with a kind of contorted gesticulation. Garrick, however, when he pleased, could imitate Johnson very exactly, for that great actor, with his distinguished powers of expression, which were so universally admired, possessed also an admirable talent of mimicry. Footnote. Hannah Moore, Memoirs, says that she was made the umpire of a trial of skill between Garrick and Boswell, which could most nearly imitate Dr. Johnson's manner. I remember I gave it to Boswell in familiar conversation, and for Garrick in reciting poetry. End of footnote. He was always jealous that Johnson spoke lightly of him. Footnote. Gesticular mimicry and buffoonery Johnson hated, and would often huff Garrick for exercising it in his presence. Hawkins's Johnson, page 386, and a footnote. I recollect his exhibiting him to me one day, as if saying, Davy has some convivial pleasantry about him, but tis a futile fellow, which he uttered perfectly with the tone and air of Johnson. Footnote. In the first two editions, Johnson is represented as only saying, Davy is futile. End of footnote. I cannot too frequently request of my readers, while they peruse my account of Johnson's conversation, to endeavour to keep in mind his deliberate and strong utterance. His mode of speaking was indeed very impressive. Footnote. My noble friend Lord Pembroke said once to me at Wilton, with a happy pleasantry and some truth, that Dr. Johnson's sayings would not appear so extraordinary were it not for his bow-wow way. The sayings themselves are generally of sterling merit, but doubtless his manner was an addition to their effect, and therefore should be attended to as much as may be. It is necessary, however, to guard those who are not acquainted with him against overcharged imitations or caricatures of his manner, which are frequently attempted, and many of which are second-hand copies from the late Mr. Henderson, the actor, who, though a good mimic of some persons, did not represent Johnson correctly. Boswell, and a footnote. His mode of speaking was indeed very impressive, and I wish it could be preserved as music is written, according to the very ingenious method of Mr. Steele. Footnote. See Prosodia Rationalis, or An Essay Towards Establishing the Melody and Measure of Speech, to be expressed and perpetuated by peculiar symbols. London, 1779, Boswell. End of footnote. Mr. Steele, who has shown how the recitation of Mr. Garrick and other eminent speakers might be transmitted to posterity in score. Footnote. I use the phrase in score, as Dr. Johnson has explained it in his dictionary, a song in score, the words with the musical notes of a song annexed. But I understand that in scientific property it means all the parts of a musical composition noted down in the characters by which it is established to the eye of the skilful. Boswell. It was declamation that Steele pretended to reduce to notation by new characters, 
this he called the melody of speech not the harmony which is the term in score implies burney end of footnote end of section forty four